Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series presented by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief, William C. Vantuono. We are continuing our series on system safety with Sonia Bott and Tony Zenga. This is part two of our Safety Doesn't Happen by Accident System Safety Comes of Age series. And part two, we are gonna look at system safety as a value added business driver. So Sonia and uh, Tony, welcome. This podcast series, as well as the articles that are published in Railway Age, the part two will be in the November issue. Part one is in the October issue. Part three of three will be in the December issue. I understand that this has been very well received, uh, this topic, as it should be. Yes, it has. We're quite excited at uh, all the uh, feedback we've been getting and folks reaching out and uh, stating how well um, this has been communicated, how well uh, it's hitting the points that we really need today in terms of system safety. And there's quite some excitement out there. So uh, this is nice to see. It sure is. Okay, so let's uh, t- uh, uh, let's get started uh, here. All right, so uh, you point out that implementing a comprehensive safety program that meets the new demands of autonomous systems can be perceived as a daunting and risky proposition, especially when breaking new ground. So, uh, Sonia, we'll start with you. How can such a perception be overcome? Okay, Bill. When I work together with leaders, organizations, and teams, I often come across what I call the problem of the heap. So imagine a heap, a disorderly collection of objects placed haphazardly on top of each other. Imagine a pile of blankets, bicycles, bottled water, shovels, flashlights, toilet paper, matches, hula hoops, you name it and they're all entangled and locked into each other. There is no organization, no structure. It's a real mess to pull something out. And why are all these things in the same heap? Is there something missing from the heap? Are there things that don't belong in the heap? And what is this heap all about? So this example heap is meant to be an emergency car kit. It is missing booster cables, flares, and first aid supplies. It's a stretch to see where hula hoops belong, and we can argue at length about the bicycles. Now, in business and inside our minds, we also have heaps. For example, we are bombarded with safety heaps in our organizations and teams. More so these days, with the onset of Industry 4.0, digitization and automation, where system safety is also now piled on. And it's pretty difficult to find where and how you fit, how you align with others, and how you navigate through it, and where there are gaps, and what things don't fit. So the immediate perception for many people is that it's daunting, intimidating, and risky. So what we first need to do is to unravel the heap. And in this case, we have a heap of safety. And now with system safety piled into it too. So we start by defining a framework 
that connects all the parts in the context of safety. In the framework, we have components such as business objectives, safety objectives, a safety management system, system safety and engineering, and so forth. With this, we can see where various pieces fit in the greater connected whole, where people themselves fit in the big picture. And by having greater clarity, there's a better sense of direction and ability to work more effectively and safely. From there, we then systematically prioritize, plan, and work through the various items and build out functionality in value-based increments. We deliver value at each step of the way. And we also systematically build up capability maturity of processes and skill sets as we go along. Tony, your thoughts? Yeah, well, so in reference to the problem of the heap and the framework, as Sonia pointed out, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about how that applies when it comes to a project. So from a system safety perspective, there is a lot of confusion at the start of a project, even if it is an existing product, which was previously fielded. Uh, and this could be because of several reasons, uh, the confusion. It could be that there's a new client that has different specifications. They cite different safety standards and different deliverables in the previous project, or the system operational concepts could be different from the previous project. They could be new key internal or external stakeholders on the project. They may be the new supplier with different uh, system boundaries. So it's been my experience that you cannot assume that a subsystem, for example, will be completely supplied by the same vendor as the previous project. Uh, a, a good example is a passenger, a passenger train door system could be supplied by a door manufacturer, excluding the mechanical doors. Those are the door leaves that are on a train, uh, which could be supplied by a different vendor or even the vehicle integrated itself. So this sort of thing results in a lot of finger pointing if an incident arises. So to unravel the heap, therefore, organizations should make use of experienced system safety professionals to help them navigate through the program requirement complexities and respective engineering processes, much like, a, uh, much like a cruise ship captain who's responsible for the ship and its passengers that uh, has the ship control to the pilots, whose primary role is to advise the ship officers regarding conditions in the port, the tides, the location of the sandbars, uh, and changes in the ship channel. So I just gave a very quick example of when a project is launched. Uh, there's an encompassing framework, and there may be other examples throughout the program lifecycle, where it is during the development, testing, or field operations. We have um, what you describe as the five guiding principles of implementing a system safety program. Uh, they are rewarding and they are rewarding an entrepreneurial culture. I always trip over that word, exercising business rigor and relevancy, forging productive partnerships, safeguarding end-to-end -end flow, and fostering a learning organization. Uh, Sonia, we'll start with you. I'd like you to explain and provide examples of those. Okay, thanks, Bill. So what you've just identified are the five guiding principles, which we can apply to implementing a system safety program. 
I'd like to start by providing a little bit of background on these guiding principles so that you can better appreciate them, so that they mean something to you. At their core, these guiding principles are based on innovation and sound business practices. And even more, they address the global shift that has taken shape. In the past, businesses placed heavy emphasis on operationally improving. But now, businesses these days are not just about improving, they are also placing emphasis on differentiating and innovating. So let's dive into these guiding principles. I'll talk about the first two, and how about you, Tony, talk about the remaining three? Sure, Sonia, sounds good. Okay, so let's start with the first guiding principle. It is rewarding an entrepreneurial culture. So you are probably wondering what on earth does this mean to reward an entrepreneurial culture when we are talking about system safety? I don't want you to get the impression that this is an undisciplined free-for-all. What I'm really trying to say is that rewarding an entrepreneurial culture means promoting the participation of all stakeholders and creating the space to identify and act on emergency safety, on emerging safety-driven opportunities. Here is how this would play out in the context of system safety. Let's start with entrepreneurial traits like creativity and controlled risk-taking. These are important traits for safety program managers and they need to be cultivated. However, these entrepreneurial safety program managers have different qualities than safety field personnel where they must adhere to strict safety procedures. Both must coexist. Effectively, I'm saying that we must strike a balance between creative risk-taking and adhering to strict safety protocols. Next, managers now become more like orchestrators where they encourage cross collaboration among functional teams and stakeholders instead of just focusing on the administration of their own function. This cross fertilization sparks ingenuity for mitigating safety related risks in order to determine optimum mitigation strategies, that is, better safety-driven solutions. It's a multifunction team effort with multifunction accountabilities to a shared goal. Next, in order for staff to participate and to contribute their input to strategic level initiatives, it's necessary to have an environment where everyone feels safe to contribute on an equal playing field and with responsive feedback loops. In addition, safety organizations should consider reassessing their operating concepts in order to ensure that they are adaptive to the ever-increasing complexity of systems and their environment. Organizations also need to constantly re-examine decisions 
for example, policy, financial, strategic, and then pivot. This is because organizations need to keep a tight focus on reducing risks in delivery and performance. And they need to concentrate on doing the right thing. And all of this is done systematically and with discipline. So, Sonia, if I'm interpreting this uh, correctly, what you're saying is that an entrepreneurship mindset demands rigor and continuous delivery of value and nothing less. Am I correct? That's right, Bill. Bang on. Correct. Now, let's take a look at the second guiding principle. Exercise business rigor and relevancy. Safety is a non-negotiable requirement for a railroad to meet its business objectives, obligations, and product service offerings. When precisely fitting services to markets or automating processes and solutions, the system safety planning and approach must be tailored for the application up front in the early concept stage. Starting any time later in the cycle adds risk to cost, quality of the solution, maintainability, and reliability. The safety business case must include a multi-dimensional business assessment with clear definitions of strengths, weaknesses, threats, and opportunities. Now, as the system safety capability matures, safety can be positioned as a value-added business driver and become less of a business cost center. And on the commercial side, safety features or their derivatives can become revenue generating product and service offerings for customers. So these are the first two guiding principles, rewarding an entrepreneurial culture and exercising business rigor and relevancy. So Tony, I'll pass the baton to you to cover the remaining three guiding principles. Thanks, Sonia. So <clears throat> the next one is to forge productive partnerships. Because of the complexities and scalability introduced in the digital world of systems as system and system integration, no one person or group or company can attack system safety alone. That's a well-known fact. Within a corporation, this is a multidisciplinary effort across the corporation, end-to-end, -end, requiring productive partnerships to be established. Highly specialized talent, not necessarily part of the current talent pool, is required for both the internal, initial stages, and the longer term. So in short term, the surest, fastest, and most sustainable approach is to bring in a small tiger team of elite professionals to assess, architect, set up, and assist in implementing system safety best practice, to establish work instructions and solutions to problems. In the process, employees learn and mature their capabilities through expert example. Furthermore, more emphasis can be placed on developing more productive and collaborative partnerships with the players in the transportation ecosystem. Such players would be um, other railroads, uh, air, ports, trucking, 
uh, pipeline, subsystem suppliers, including customers, to pursue creative approaches to system safety challenges and also act as a force multiplier for government agencies that do not have the resources to investigate every potential system safety issue. The, uh, the fourth guiding principle is safeguard end-to-end -end flow. By its very nature, system safety requires an end-to-end -end system view where the system can comprise of technology components, processes, and people, and scale within the organization or across the organization, companies, ecosystems, and supply chains. Typical areas of safety vulnerability include integration points of technology components and interfaces, handoff between parties, and balancing supply chain implications at first and last mile terminals. One needs to follow and address potential hazards step-by-step step from its point of origin and through the cascading web within its impact. The fifth guiding principle is to foster a learning organization. So <clears throat> as system safety is being embedded into the organization, company and ecosystem, it is, it is important to develop learning mechanisms that allow the adoption and execution of safety best practices. Uh, a continuous mastery and improvement mindset is required system-wide, along with supporting tools and structures. Uh, learning elements come from all areas, for example, crisis, disruption, success, that are augmented with leadership rotation through and within the ecosystem. For example, interdisciplinary people exchange, skill investment, enterprise-wide mobilization to engage and build the leadership cohort. Uh, this requires a fully committed, aligned, disciplined, transformational, and experienced leadership. Therefore, to reiterate the guiding principle, Sonia covered the first two guiding principles, which are rewarding an entrepreneurial culture, exercising business rigor and relevancy, and I just spoke about the remaining three guiding principles, which are forging productive partnerships, safeguarding end-to-end -end flow, and fostering a learning organization. Okay, thank you, Tony. I'm <clears throat> kind of gratified that uh, I'm not the only one to trip over the word entrepreneurial. Uh, try saying that 10 times fast. <laughs> no, not here, though. Um, so, uh, moving on, um, you both note that, uh, and this sounds a little dangerous, actually. Uh, in some cases, safety failures are socially accepted within the walls of an industry. Uh, why is that, and how can this be overcome? Tony, let's uh, start with you. That's a great question. So, in some industries, it is simpler to pay the cost associated with an incident or accident. So I'd like to remind the listeners that the roles of system safety professionals is to perform hazard analysis and work with the organization to eliminate or control the safety risks or safety related risks. So system safety professionals do not assign blame. This is the job of the courts. Uh, I'd like to share two very high profile cases. The first case involves the Ford Pinto. The millenniums may never have heard of this, but some of us probably remember the Ford Pinto. So during the 1970s, the explosion of the Ford Pintos was due to a defective fuel system design that was centered around the use of Ford 
uh, in a cost-benefit analysis. And the ethics surrounding its decision not to upgrade the fuel system was based on this analysis. So although Ford had access to new design, which would have decreased the possibility uh, of the Pinto from exploding, the company chose not to implement the design, which would have costed only $11 per car. So based on Ford's analysis, the cost to mitigate the safety risk would have been about $137 million versus the $49.5 million price tag put on fatalities, injury, injuries, and car damages, and thus the company felt justified not implementing the design change. So here's what happened. In 1972, a mother and son traveling in their Pinto was struck by another car traveling at approximately 30 miles per hour. The impact ignited a fire in the Pinto which killed one parent and left the boy with devastating injuries. A judgment was rendered against Ford and the jury awarded the family $560,000 as well as $2.4 million in compensatory damages. Now, the surprise came when the jury awarded $125 million in punitive damages on top of that. So that's a good lesson learned. Now, let's fast forward to 2018 and in the, in the glorious aviation industry. The Boeing 737 MAX incorporated a number of design changes, which included the Leap 1B series uh, turbofan engines and made structural changes to accommodate the new engines and other improvements, as well as the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, known as MCAS function. So collectively, these changes incorporated into the, seven, into the 737 MAX design resulted in increased fuel efficiency, increased range, and a reduced noise profile compared to its predecessor, the uh, Boeing 737NG. As for the MCAS, it is used to adjust the horizontal stabilizer trim to push the nose down when the aircraft is operating in manual flight. With the flaps up at an elevated angle of attack, so the pilot will not inadvertently pull the airplane up too steeply, potentially causing a stall. So without analyzing this in too much detail, the, AIMC, the MCAS became notorious for its role, which led to the worldwide grounding of the aircraft. And then August to, in August 2020, the FAA issued a preliminary summary of the FAA's review of the Boeing 737 MAX. In the review, there are 12 global recommendations one of which is the FAA should take the necessary steps to ensure a total system approach to safety, linking all safety requirements from type certification to pilot training and operational performance of the product. So from the two examples, we note that companies and regulators are overwhelmed with the preparation and review of safety artifact. Passenger rail is further ahead from freight by doing a voluntary self-assessment for safety. The situation for rail, however, is improving, given that in February 18, 2020, the FRA issued the Federal Reg Register Volume 85, Number 32, Rules and Regulations to require a risk reduction program to be implemented by the rail industry. Sonia, your take on this? So Bill, uh, as you know, you said earlier, this is both one of the most loaded questions when it comes to safety anywhere, and it's a really complex area. So uh, Tony spoke about a tactical business case perspective, 
which is high risk and by no means strategic nor sustainable amongst other things. And this occurs across many industries, including our own in rail, whether in high profile cases similar to what Tony mentioned, or in lesser profile ones that have been perpetuating for the longest time and are still unresolved. So think derailments and collisions relating to engineering infrastructure, mechanics of rolling stock, and human factors. So I'm going to take a step outward and I'm gonna talk about the cultural maturity perspective. So first, we have psychological factors that can spread throughout an organization and an entire industry. One factor is learned helplessness. For example, when you hear statements along the lines of, things will never change no matter what you do, it's a sign of learned helplessness. People come to believe that they are unable to control or change the situation, so they don't try, even when opportunities for change become available. Another psychological factor is cognitive dissonance. For example, when you present a well-proven safety solution, you immediately hear pushback statements like, this will take too long. Why do we need this now? This will add too much work. Another example of safety slowing things down and causing problems. These pushbacks are signs of cognitive dissonance. The two examples that Tony provided both show evidence of cognitive dissonance. And when you start digging behind the scenes, we also find signs of learned helplessness by the staff. Second, safety laws can be complex, and so can operator-regulator relationships and dynamics. Safety laws and regulations are continually evolving to create safer environments, but it's an ongoing challenge to keep abreast of these changes. Not only must you understand and adapt to these changes, you must also communicate them, say to your employees, and to ensure they can act on them appropriately. Now, the only way to move forward is to know where you are at. And this is done by benchmarking the maturity of your safety culture. And we can do this using the DuPont-Bradley curve as a tool. It classifies four stages, from the least mature to the most mature. The first stage, which is called reactive, here individuals don't take responsibility and believe accidents will happen. Safety is delegated to a lone safety manager. The second stage, called dependent, here individuals view safety as following rules and procedures. Accident rates start to decrease. The third stage, called independent, here individuals take responsibility and believe they can make a difference with actions. Accidents reduce further. And the fourth stage, 
interdependent, the shift moves from individuals to teams that own the safety culture. Here, zero accidents is an achievable goal. Now in rail, according to ARIMA, the American Railway Engineering and Maintenance of Way Association, the recommendation is to design safety solutions that have less than one catastrophic event per million operating hours. So that is the, we'll say, definition of zero accidents, so to speak. So in the end, as the culture matures through the progression from the reactive stage, the least mature, through to the interdependent stage, the most mature, operational effectiveness improves. And that gives more room for pursuing profitable opportunities while being safe and growing the enterprise. Now, I'd like to point out that organizations can move forward or backward in their cultural maturity. For example, with Boeing, uh, that was, Boeing was very mature in its safety culture at one point in time, with all of its processes, best practices, tools, and infrastructures in place, and everybody following them. However, there came a point with the 737 MAX where this eroded, where these processes and best practices were not followed, or they were shortcut. And we are seeing the consequences. Uh, the executives can state to the investigators, the media, and the courts that they have good safety processes or best practices, which is true on paper. However, if they are not followed, they are not being useful. So you need to always be vigilant, vigilant where you are at on the safety culture capability maturity curve. In the long run, by having the awareness of knowing where you are at, you can then move forward with real action. You know, I'm uh, just want to expand on this just just briefly. Uh, I'm uh, I've been following the space program since I was uh, a child in the 1960s. You know, growing up with the Apollo program and. Uh, the uh, the two space shuttle disasters, the uh, the Challenger, uh, where there was a uh, a burn through of uh, it was an O ring on the solid rocket booster that burned through and and caused the fuel the external fuel tank to explode, and then the Columbia where several tiles uh, uh, heat shield tiles had fallen off um, during during launch. They were they were struck by pieces of the insulation on the external fuel tank and that caused uh, during re-entry a burn through which caused the the shuttle to break up during re-entry uh, those seem to me as though they're the similar type of uh, what, what you were just describing here would you would, would you agree well I'll, I'll i guess i can address that uh, having worked in the space program i worked both on uh, uh, on the robotic arm for the canadian space agency um, as well as several satellites uh, yes, those were issues, and they were issues that were flagged. At least the first one with the O-ring, uh, they were flagged, uh, and uh, and I guess they didn't get the uh, required uh, support from the entire organization. Whereas the second uh, accident, uh, that was like a, I think it was like an unknown. Nobody ever thought that a foam 
uh, could have done that kind of am uh, damage. Uh, and therefore, the mitigation to that was to actually, uh, upon reentry, to have a, uh, a robotic uh, arm under the space shuttle to check uh, that everything was fine before reentering into uh, the atmosphere. So uh, accidents do happen. Uh, but the goal is to uh, either minimize them or, or to reduce them entirely. Uh, and even, and, and I was reminded when I was in the, at, the, at the space agency that even though a company such as NASA that's got billions and billions of dollars of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, budget, these things can still happen. But, and so everybody needs to work diligently when we're working in safety, uh, in the system safety program. So let's move on to uh, two terms here that uh, are pretty strong here. Uh, big bang delivery and isolated brute force. Uh, you propose an alternative called entrepreneurial, there's that word again, entrepreneurial time to market. Uh, if you could describe that. I'll talk about big bang and entrepreneurial time to market. And Tony, how about you cover isolated brute force? Sure, that sounds good. I'll do that. Okay. So Big Bang development and delivery is loosely based on the cosmological Big Bang theory. The notion here is that beginning with nothing, you feverishly work at developing the finished product, which you produce in a mere instant, relatively speaking. Big Bang Delivery is fundamentally about starting the project right now, at this instant, with no formal development structure or organization. There is virtually no planning, organization, best practices, or typical procedures. A one-time, typically large funding investment is made at the early beginning. There is a lot of experimenting, lots of trial and error improvements, which boils down to sweat equity until you get it right. It's full of high profile heroics and firefighting, and it does not endure the rotation of leadership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think you see where this is going. The big bang approach becomes increasingly risky because success or failure is evaluated at the end of a long and expansive implementation cycle. The bottom line is that Big Bang, or any of its derivatives, is too linear and too simple for complex and safety critical systems and the current business climate. This is why an entrepreneurial time to market approach is much better. The entrepreneurial time-to-market approach is low-risk, nimble, and scalable, and it aligns with modern approaches used by the new entrant competitors. Capital and effort are allocated in stages. Tangible value is delivered in progressive increments. The system safety value propositions and methodology are embedded into the delivery framework, the systems engineering lifecycle. It is structured to be more inclusive of all stakeholders. And it calculates and manages risk tightly, incrementally delivering value earlier 
and there's no waiting until the end of a long program cycle to determine success or failure. So we need to shift from the Big Bang delivery approach or its derivatives, depending on where you are on the continuum, to rapid value-added delivery cycles, as in the entrepreneurial time-to-market approach. So Tony, over to you to talk about shifting focus from an isolated brute force approach to a more mature systems engineering approach. So thank you, Sonia. So from a, an isolated brute force to progressively interconnected system maturity focus, railroads must still resolve longstanding human factor safety issues, such as a lack of adherence to policies and rules. Our system safety methodology is very systematic and relentless with its approach to cultural and capability development across organizations and across the ecosystem. System safety is all about the performance of hazard analysis, their elimination and, and or control. System safety professionals have proven system safety processes and methodologies and hands-on experience to evaluate systems and ensure that the adverse conditions are considered, mitigated and verified. We make it a point to practically understand current maturity levels and progressively build up to its target levels. We utilize the Pareto principles as a starting point, recognizing that 80% of the problems arise from 20% of their causes, unless there is solid data indicating otherwise. And it applies business precision uh, methods for, prior, for prioritization. And applies business precision methods for prioritization. With traditional approaches, focus is typically uh, on individual departments or organizations within a railroad, and in several cases, unnecessary large-scale rip and replace strategies are used. Plus, there is no consideration for the rest of the transportation ecosystem. Sonia, my next uh, question is for you, but uh, before I ask you the question, I'd like to commend you on not tripping once over that lovely word, entrepreneurial. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I commend so you for the that. challenge is on now. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't ask you to say it 10 times fast, though. Okay. So why is it so important for safety to evolve from a cost center to a value-added business driver, Sonia? Well, the traditional approaches view safety as a business cost center. It costs money to clean up accidents or close calls, and it impacts your reputation. I believe we can do much better than that with our system safety approach. Rather than investing heavily on processes and systems to clean up mishaps and accidents, or even gaming the systems, let's focus on proactively building systems, solutions, products and services with value added safety and reliability features up front where they can even generate new revenue streams. We can even consider system safety as a vehicle for adjacent segment strategies for growing the business. With safer operations, the need for investing in processes and systems for cleaning up decreases. And with the time and resources that are freed up, they can be productively channeled for innovative and entrepreneurial endeavors. 
from a commercial perspective, innovative safety-based solutions, for example, conflict avoidance algorithms or safety-specific test procedures for a given system, they can be patented, where the patents can then be monetized. For example, you can generate revenue streams from the patents by licensing, sell, selling them, or litigating them. And this is a potentially lucrative business model as proven over the past decade in many industries that have taken advantage of um, technology-based innovation. Also in my experience, uh, process waste is reduced by 20 to 80%. And this is proven through statistically correlated data of our results. And I don't spew out these statistics lately. The amount of improvement depends on where the organization starts from on the maturity curve. So with safety at the core and the heart of railroading ever since you know, the 1800s, this is one area where railroads have a real potential to maintain competitive advantage. Well, thank you, Sonia. Um, Tony, any closing thoughts? Yes, Bill, thanks for asking. Uh, and again, just to provide a very basic summary of system safety as a value-added business driver, there's a need to move forward towards uh, the guiding principles. Industry uh, 4.0 demands a shift in traditional paradigms for safety and in railroading, uh, where system safety engineering is at the core. When driven by the proven guiding principles, a railroad, including its partners, can effectively launch and progressively mature its system safety practice. As an added bonus, system safety becomes a mechanism for creating new revenue streams. Uh, and as I've done the last uh, podcast, I'd like to thank you, Bill, for giving us this opportunity to introduce to the listeners uh, the system safety engineering discipline. I look forward to constructive comments from your listeners and a simple reminder that safety is everybody's business. Thank you. Sonia, closing thoughts for part two here? Sure. So it's great that the rail in the rail industry, we are focusing on using new technology for improving safe operations. However, we must keep in mind that in the digital and automation world, that continuously demands integration of systems and solutions. And it's really unforgiving to any shortcomings in their integration. So this is where system safety plays a crucial role. And the good news is that the methods are proven. What's more, we can leverage the full potential of what system safety can bring to a railroad beyond operating safely. It can be a lever for growing the business and this will require a paradigm shift in how we're operating today. So in closing, um, you know, along with Tony, we invite the listeners of the series to reach out to us with their thoughts. We'd love to hear from you as we evolve through system safety and as we evolve uh, through the next generation of railroading together. And I'll continue to say, these are really exciting times to be a railroader. And I think I would wholeheartedly agree with you on that. Well, thank you, uh, Sonia Bott and uh, Tony Zenga. Uh, this is, uh, concludes part two of our system safety series, Rail Group on Air. Stay tuned for part three. Um, part two, as I mentioned earlier, 
will will be in our the the comprehensive article will be in the November issue. It'll uh, print and digital as well as on our uh, the news section of our website. Everything will be linked together. Um, makes for interesting reading and, and interesting listening. Thank you both, and uh, have a safe day. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill.